Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is sponsored by Libro FM. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick up you can pick for more than 125,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books in your busy life. Listen during your commute while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of Book Riot can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code BR3. As a bonus, sign up now and get five free audiobooks delivered to you on Bookstore Day a one-day national party that takes place at bookstores across the country on Saturday, April 27th. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Welcome to SSS Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science, fiction, and fantasy. This is episode 52, and we're recording on April 19th. I'm Sharifa Williams, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. Today, we're talking about nature in sci-fi and fantasy, and also, I am coming to you from a really not great connection. (laughs) So, sorry about the sound quality. In today's episode, I have to do some fixing on my computer. Technology! Oh my goodness, it is the... It is the worst, the scrambling before this episode. I'm glad you guys will never have to hear any of that part of this recording. (laughs) We will spare you. (laughs) Yes. Um, But yeah, it's kind of fortuitous that we're talking about nature too, because I realized that Earth Day is on Monday um, after we record this podcast and before it goes out into the world. Look at that accidental perfect theme. I know. I don't know. I don't know how that happened. It must have been on our mind. It must have been. It must have just snuck in there. Like a fungus, like a spore. (laughs) See what I did there. (laughs) That was very clever. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Should we talk about our... Oh, uh, if you haven't checked out our Kidlit show, by the way, I think we talked about this last uh, episode, but we have a new Kidlit show. And... uh, it's amazing. It's hosted by Karina, our writer, and Matthew, who just recently came on board. And it's kidlit these days, and you should definitely check it out if you haven't already. We talked about proposing some SFF themes for the next uh, few shows, so hopefully they will pick up on that and do that. But yeah, definitely check out uh, kid, the Kidlit show that just came out. All right. Should I tell everybody about our first sponsor? 
It is Upon a Burning Throne by Ashok K. Banker. And this is a series inspired by the Mahabharata, which is a Hindu epic poem. And Ashok is an international best-selling author. And this is about an empire called the Burnt Empire. And the emperor has died, leaving a turbulent realm without a sovereign. And there are two young princes in line to rule, but birthright does not guarantee inheritance because any successor has to sit upon the burning throne and pass the test of fire, capital letters, Uh, and imbued with dark sorceries, the throne is a crucible, one that incinerates the unworthy. And the princes pass the test, but there is another who also survives, a girl from an outlying kingdom. When she's denied her claim, her father, a powerful demon lord, declares war, leaving the princes to rule a shattered realm embroiled in rebellion. So this is sort of a more internationally inclined political succession story not dissimilar to the game of thrones perhaps you were thinking and you would be correct so if you need more of that in your life and who doesn't uh check out this epic fantasy it's called upon a burning throne by ashok k banker thank you so much for sponsoring the show cool all right let's move on to news and i want to talk about this netia core for news which is fantastic. It feels like we have something new to talk about um, surrounding her every single time we get on <laughs> SFF. Yeah. She's a and busy lady. She is, I don't know how she does it, but now she's creating a TV series company for African, uh, African futurist stories, which is like, this is absolutely her wheelhouse. I don't know anybody else who could take this project on. Um, so she revealed this on Facebook, and this is just a little while ago. This is on April 16th that she shouted out the news. And the company's name is going to be African Futurism Productions Incorporated. And she's saying this is her focus right now. So she wants to do series. She does not want to do film. She says it's too restrictive. Um, and it also seems like a lot of TV series are... Like, I almost feel like people are watching more series than movies these days, like just being at home, not dealing with the movie theaters, other than like streaming movies. So I think this is a really good idea. And there are so many uh, speculative stories that really fit into the series format, I think, really well. And that's why we're seeing a lot of like these science fiction fantasy anthology shows. So I'm curious about whether she's going to do that. She hasn't revealed that much about what it's going to look like, what the projects are going to be. Um, This was just a shout out about this is going to happen. And we should look forward to seeing some stuff come out of this production company. And I will be really interested in seeing what she produces first and where it's going to air. Um, She has a novella, Who Fears Death, that we talked about. This is a while ago. We talked about the news about Who Fears Death being adapted for HBO. So she has her own things going on in terms of getting her stories adapted. So... Lots happening in her life, Um, and I'm really excited about this news. And it also reminded me of a video I saw recently on Refinery29 where they were looking into, and in this uh, video they call it Afrofuturist, Nnedi Okorafor calls 
it African futurist, um, but they talk about Afrofuturist fashion in this Refinery29 video that I just wanted to link out for everybody to watch. I don't want to talk too much about it, but I watched the whole thing. It was really cool a really good look at Afrofuturist subcultures and African futurist uh, fashion. And they literally go from, you know, the U.S. They talk to my new favorite person, Delta Major, who is amazing, an amazing designer of Afrofuturist uh, wear. And she's into comics. And they talk to her. They talk to some experts about the subculture and about that realm of speculative fiction. And they even go to Africa, which is really cool to see that whole thing. Just check it out. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, I would like to co-sign all of this. I think you're right. I think that assuming you can get the budget, there's a lot of world building you can do in a TV series that you just don't have time for in a movie, which I assume is what is perhaps one of the things Nettie Okorafor was talking about when she told a person on Twitter that film is too restrictive and that's why she's focusing on TV series. Mm. And it makes perfect sense to me. Again, assuming you can get the budget, which is, you know, never a guarantee, but certainly she seems to have as good of a shot as anybody would given her connections and her abilities to uh, write amazing stories and, and then, you know, get, get them out into the world. So I'm really excited to see what she'll pick up. I think, I assume she'll be looking at other people's works and I want to read all of those. Like if she thinks it's mm -hmm. worth adapting, I want to read it basically <laughs> is what I'm saying here. And I, I haven't finished watching that video yet, but it, I watched the first half and it is amazing. We've talked before about fashion on the show and I'm a huge project runway fan. And so Same. seeing this focus on runway fashion in particular from the Afrofuturist viewpoint and, you know, they interviewed a woman who's a scholar of fashion at the new school and she has such interesting things to say Kimberly Jenkins so I this is just completely fascinating and really cool and the fashions are incredible and I highly recommend watching it it's really really awesome to see so yeah super super excited about all of the, just all of it all of it yeah don't be surprised if I have a new wardrobe <laughs> I'm, I'm so tired so ready for it so ready <laughs> Um, I want to talk about the Kitschies winners next. Yeah. The Kitschies awards are ones that are sort of, it might even be my favorite awards. They're a British or UK award that goes to the year's most progressive, intelligent, and entertaining science fiction as defined by the judging panel. And they get a like different colored tentacles are the awards. <laughs> so the winner of the red tentacle this year is Circe by Madeline Miller. And clearly they mean science fiction and fantasy, I think, because Circe is obviously oh, yeah. more of a fantasy than a science fiction. But yes, uh, Circe won this year. And it was a really good short list. It was uh, Circe, uh, record, 
excuse me, Record of a Spaceborn Few by Becky Chambers, The Smoke by Simon Ings, Rosewater by Tade Thompson, and Unholy Land by Levi Tadar. So a very good panel and congratulations to her. And then mm-hmm. The Golden Tentacle, which goes to a debut, went to Frankenstein in Baghdad by Ahmed Sadoi, which I think you read. Is that right? I did. I did read it like way back, feels like years ago, and I really enjoyed it. So I'm happy to see that because I haven't really heard that much about it since. Yeah, it's been on my list. I think Amanda read it too, and you both recommended it, and I do want to read it one of these days. So I definitely have to bump that up on my list now that it has won a tentacle award, (laughs) which is super cool. Um, There's even an inky tentacle award for best cover art, which went to Suzanne Dean, who designed the cover of Haruki Murakami's Killing Commendatore. So it's a very, I just think it's an interesting, fun concept. I love that the prize is a tentacle. Madeline Miller on her Instagram had the most amazing picture because she couldn't go to accept it at the award ceremony on April 15th. And so somebody made for her like two red tentacles to put on her book uh, <laughs> until until she got her official award, which is just delightful. You should go look that up. So yeah, I, I'm a fan and I'm always happy to see them announced every year. This is really fun. I agree. Like sometimes it can feel like And I don't know what it is because science fiction and fantasy to me is sometimes like, of course, they're like really serious messages a lot of the time. Uh, But, you know, like there is a sense of fun about speculative fiction. And so it's nice to see that celebrated as well as like, you know, giving it all the gravitas, which it fully deserves. Yes. Oh, it's nice to have a little fun once in a while. Exactly. And I love uh, that Cersei one because obviously that was like one of my favorite books. So. I gotta read it. I can't believe I still haven't oh, read that's it. Right. I, have, I have failed everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just really excited for you because it's so good. Like, I, yeah. Yeah. I feel like everybody who's read it so far wishes they could just read it again like it's new. Yeah. I know I'm gonna love it when I get to it. I know I am. I'm sure I'll hear all about it. Hopefully. Oh, you will. Okay, I wanted to talk about this horror imprint. Uh, We don't often, I mean, we talk a little bit about horror. There are horror elements in some of the books we've recommended on this show, but I'm a huge horror fan. Uh, So I was really excited about this news that Tor is making a new imprint, and it is all about horror, and it's called Nightfire. So... They're creating it. They just announced this, like, I think it was, like, last week. Oh, it says it was April 12th uh, when this actual news piece came out. And so they're just having this new imprint, and it's going to include all of the types, the formats uh, you see from Tor usually, which is, like, they're going to have podcasts, they're going to have graphic novels and other media, as well as books, uh, print, audio, ebook, And, of course, there are going to be uh, novellas which I'm actually the most excited about. They're going to have short story collections, novellas, and novels. But Tor has been so amazing with science fiction and fantasy novellas. And I'm trying to remember, like, I think the only novella I've really read in horror is, like, Victor Lavelle, uh, The Ballad of Black Tom, which I'm trying to remember if that one came from Tor, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, But yeah, I'm really excited about this in general. 
the first publication is planned for early 2021, so I'm not sure what it's going to be yet. They haven't announced it, but are you looking for? Are you are you into horror a little, right? Ooh, it depends. It's creepy. Yeah, I mean, there are authors who I will read, like Tanana Reeve Du, and mm-hmm. actually Tade Thompson. I think the Murders of Molly Southbourne, which was his tour novella, would count as horror. And I, I will occasionally, I, it has to be, it has to be so specific for me because there are so many things I don't want in my brain. <laughs> like I don't enjoy <laughs> feeling scared. And so I don't watch a lot of horror movies in particular, and I don't read much horror fiction, but obviously I read Victor Laval, I read Lauren Bucus, you know, so yeah. I, I do make exceptions it just has to be, I have to trust that it's worth it, I guess, is the, like, I'm more willing to take a chance on a fantasy or a science fiction book because it's fine. If it's not great and I don't like it, it's not going to necessarily live forever in my brain and give me nightmares. Whereas horror, <laughs> even if it's poorly done, it can still get in there. And I have, it's been that way since I was a kid. Like I will get afraid of something and then have a really hard time getting it out of my head. So I'm never going to go see it in any of its iterations, for example, <laughs> you know, like I'm never going to, they're just things I'm never going to see because I know myself well enough to know that I just, can't handle having it in my brain. So I I sort of tend to either like know and trust the author in the case of Bucus or Laval or Tananarive Du, or somebody who knows me well has vetted it for me in advance. But I do, I agree with you that the novellas could be really interesting because then, you know, they're shorter, first of all. Yeah. There's, <laughs> less, there's less opportunity for them to do major damage to my psyche. Um, so yeah, I'm in interested i'm in inter- I'm, I'm hesitantly cautiously interested well look if i have to be the one to sacrifice myself yeah. and read all the horror books i suppose i can do that <laughs> you are a giver you are a true giver i try <laughs> do you think we have time for one more i do and i am really excited to talk about this because there have, I think my reaction to this news has been a little bit different from most of the other reactions I've seen. So the news is, is that Saga has, it has been announced that Saga by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples has officially hit its midpoint. Issue 54 has been announced that that is the halfway point and after another 54 issues, Saga will end. And they have had this planned out according to the article from the beginning. They knew their end point and they are just now telling the rest of the world. And I think we should say at this point that it took us six years to get here. Like that is how long that saga has been developing, which is bananas to me, but true. And so it's not like this is going to end tomorrow. It's going to take a while for us to get to number 108, but people are already sort of like, you know, sharing all of their crying face emoji, Mm -hmm. which I understand, but also I am kind of relieved to be perfectly honest because I am so behind on Saga and I keep trying to figure out the best way to catch up. And it's sort of nice for me to 
to know, especially after this whole like Game of Thrones never ending, will he finish it, et cetera, saga. It's really nice for me to know that there's a planned end point. Like weirdly, I take comfort in that and that someday I will be able to read the whole thing in its entirety, hopefully, assuming all goes well. I mean, who six years is a long time and it maybe won't take six years to get there on the other half, but you never know. It might take longer. Like who can say? So taking into account that, you know, acts of God and nature and whatever, it's comforting for me to know that there's a planned end to a series. Is that insane? Am I, am I alone in this? I don't know. No, I 100% agree with you. Like, I think that it, it's, it's weirdly fun sometimes to be like, oh, woe is us. This thing is going to end and let's all share our tears and whatnot. But I think like, I feel like a lot of the people who are bemoaning its end are probably feeling the same way you do because we do get so much of this in SFF where we're just waiting and we don't know if we're ever going to get to the end of a thing. And Mm -hmm. it is good to know that it's, still going to be a lot and I'm in the same camp I have so much catching up to do uh it's gonna take me a while so I'm okay with it I'm fine with the length of it I'm fine with it ending it is true to its name it is an absolute saga and I'm ready for it to end at some point. Yeah. <laughs> real yeah. closure. Right right and I do also appreciate and it's because I've been trying to figure out, I have a weird mix of graphic novel compilations and single issues. And I haven't figured out like the best way to figure out what I'm missing and then catch up accordingly. But Image mm-hmm. is on top of it because they are releasing Saga Compendium 1 on October 16th, which will be all of the first 54 issues released so far. And so if you too are like, how on earth do I like get back to, do I even know what I've missed and what I haven't missed? There will be one volume that has all of it in it. It's available for pre-order and I might even put in like a pre-reserve at my library mm-hmm. uh, just to see, because they do tend to be pretty, but also they're not the cheapest, those compendiums. So we'll see what the price point is, but there will be a saga compendium one that has everything up to this point. So that That's is, yeah, it's good to know. I think it's good to know. I'm going to get that. I think I'm just going to wait till that comes out because I can't handle like that's the one thing with comics. It sometimes gets so overwhelming. Yes. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Please collect it for me. Right. Exactly. Just make this easier for me, please. And thank you. Yes. All right. Well, before we get to our recommendations, I am going to tell you about our second sponsor, which is BookCon. Uh, I don't know how many of you out there are planning to go to BookCon, but BookCon is a celebration of storytelling happening June 1st and 2nd in New York City. And BookCon is packed with authors you know and love and new ones to discover. Have your book signed by B. Schwab, Leigh Bardugo, Charlie Jane Anders, N.K. Jemison, and more. Meet up with other book lovers, snag copies of books before they're released, and explore this event packed with bookish goodies and interactive experiences. I'm uh, going to be at Book Expo, actually, which is 
like the professional publishing part of BookCon. BookCon is more for the fans. Um, so I'm going to be missing BookCon itself, but it always looks like a big fun event. And I always see, I always think of like the booktubers walking around when I think of BookCon, yes. because that's what I saw last year, which was my first year going. So uh, if you're looking into BookCon, if you're around New York City, you should definitely check it out. Thanks so much for sponsoring the show. All right. So we decided to talk about science fiction fantasy that has a lot of nature in it. Mm -hmm. And before I give my first actual pick, I want to do a quick shout out to the Queens of Renthea series by Sarah Beth Durst. It's a complete trilogy and there's a companion book out right now, I believe. Uh, and it is basically like, what if all nature had nature spirits? So like earth spirits, air spirits, fire spirits, water spirits, and they were basically determined to kill humanity and only some people could control them with magic. Like that's what that's about. So if you have any interest <laughs> in supernaturally weaponized nature, that series is one to check out. And Amazing. yeah, it's fun. Although I do not recommend reading it while camping. That's a bad idea. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> um, but I, so I was thinking about that series and I was like, oh, you know, forests are kind of ubiquitous in fantasy, right? Like the woods is in all of the fairy tales and the fables. And then I was thinking about The Empire of Sand by Tasha Suri, which is my fantasy pick because this is a desert nature story. And I don't feel like we have so many of those. And I think that the desert is just as interesting, actually, as the forest in terms of a fantasy setting. So this is a the first in a series, I will tell you. Uh, it, I think it comes to a very satisfying conclusion, though. It's not a super cliffhangery ending. And it is in, set in a world inspired by Mughal India, which I loved. And it follows a young woman named Mare, who is the illegitimate illegitimate daughter of an imperial governor and a, uh, her mother was part of a tribe called the Amriti and her mother has you know been exiled so she has grown up basically without her mother in her father's court and she is very pampered and has you know privileges in that she has nice clothes and fancy food but she doesn't have much control over her day-to-day -day life she just kind of drifts around trying to keep herself sane. Uh, she does not get along with her stepmother, surprise. And she has a younger sister who she's only allowed to see very rarely because the stepmother is concerned that Mare's bad, you know, behavior and tribal roots will taint this younger sister. And Mare discovers that she does have this power that's unique to her mother's tribe and word gets out and somebody at the emperor's court finds out and sends for her and she basically has to go and surrender her power to the imperial court for its own ends. And she to get there goes on this sort of epic journey across the desert with a bunch of people she doesn't know, including her now sworn husband who she's never met before. And that was part of the deal of going to the emperor's court. And it's so 
atmospheric. It's such an amazingly written journey. It's so detailed. And there are these sort of supernatural creatures that inhabit the desert landscape in a really amazing way. And she has to interact with them and then these people that she doesn't really know and who can she trust and what do people want of her. And she's also not really in control of or understanding her own powers. So she has to go on that kind of journey as well. But it's all set against this desert landscape. And it, it was, it was so immersive. You feel like you're there in, you know, with the sandstorms and the heat and the cold at night and, you know, the camels and the whatever. It's just really wonderful. And again, I just, I feel like that's unique uh, in uh, fantasy and that you just don't see much in the way of desert landscape with a supernatural twist. And if I'm, if you know of one, please do write in to SFF. Yeah. At bookriot.com Cause I would love to read more, but I can't, I just can't think of that. I mean, Dune obviously, but that's mm-hmm. sci-fi, not fantasy. And, you know, the woods is just, I think, especially, you know, if you grew up on the Eastern seaboard, which I did, I'm much more familiar with woods than I am with desert, despite a little bit of time living in Arizona and California. So it's a thing that I I really enjoyed. So again, that's Empire of Sand by Tasha Suri. Well, Jen, I see your desert and raise you a farm. Hey! I literally had that line in my head the entire time we were talking. I couldn't wait to say it. That's so the <laughs> Okay, so my fantasy pick is Gingerbread by Helen Yemi. I was having like I was having a lot of thoughts too, and I happened upon this exact same idea of like fairy tales and woods. Like that is definitely a theme you see a lot of. Um And then, because I was completely confused about what to choose, I thought, well, what book cover has nature on it (laughs) (laughs) that I own? So I was going through my shelves, and I saw Gingerbread. And, of course, if you've seen the cover of Gingerbread, it has this, like, sort of, to me, iconic-looking, I can't remember if it's a raven or a crow. Uh, I should probably ask a bird person. I'm not necessarily one, but um, either a raven or a crow with a tangerine. And I was like, oh, wait, there is some nature. There's a farm. So uh, if you've been listening for a while, you know that I am a huge Oyeyemi fan. I will not stop talking about her. So I jumped on this book when I heard it was coming out, and I actually remember reading the description back when we were talking about our anticipated releases for the first part of the year um, before 2019, and the description I remember was pretty vague. I hadn't read it at that point, but I knew the book would have, you know, this fairy tale flavor because of the title and because that's kind of her thing. So... Once I remembered that this had a fairy tale element, and once I saw the book cover, I was like, yes, this has nature. You have fields, you have farmers, you have carrier pigeons, and it's all amazing. Um, So the story itself actually centers on a mother and a daughter. And I initially thought this book would follow the daughter, Perdita, but for the most part, it actually focuses on the mom, Harriet. And the pair kind of make this really off-kilter family. I love them so much. Uh, Neither of them fits into this, you know, somewhat hip, chic London community of, you know, both school kids on Perdita's side and parents on uh, Harriet's side. And they're just surrounded by these people that they really just don't fit in with. 
And Harriet tries so hard to fit in with the other parents. It's almost heartbreaking. But there's a lot more to their strangeness than being just a little offbeat. Like, for instance, the dolls Perdita keeps in her room are modded with these plants for arms and, like, palm leaves for hair. Really weird things. And the dolls speak and pass judgment on Harriet. They're so funny. Uh, that part of the those characters were particularly <laughs> hilarious. Uh, but then, you know, something really bad happens because Perdita's, uh, because of Perdita's curiosity about her mother's past. And Harriet's kind of forced to pull the skeletons out of the closet. And she's telling this story about her past and about her life and where she came from, which is the really weird surreal part of the story. Uh, and so much of the book takes place on this farm where Harriet's raised among other families, also farmers who are struggling to grow these blighty crops and where there are these weird landmarks. So think of like the, the eeriest farmscape in this unreal, not on the map place. So there are these weird landmarks like jack-o'-lanterns and wells that have strange, creepy stories attached to them. And they just exist there among the grain fields. And at the center of this story is Gingerbread and also Harriet's childhood friend, Gretel. And the development of Harriet and Gretel's relationship, like the significance of Gingerbread and Harriet's flight from home, all of these things come to a head in this really winding, weird, disorienting, fabulous way that is very much Helen Oyeyemi. And what I love about this story and others by her is that they're very much about the bonds between women and the women in her stories, unlike, you know, in fairy tales, we talk about traditional fairy tales sometimes, and they're very, you know, formulaic, and the women in particular don't have agency, and that's completely the opposite in these stories that take fairy tale elements that Helen Oyemi writes. Uh, the women characters in her stories are like onions. You think you know them and then you peel and peel away and they're something completely unexpected. And the internal journey in the story is as big as the one that's playing out on the page and on the stage. The nature in the story itself comes from the realm of fairy tale. But the story itself is very different from your traditional fairy tale, including the rural aspect of it. You're not so much lost in the woods, you're lost in on the farm. <laughs> um, but Harriet's upbringing is really like outdoorsy and really anachronistic in this interesting way. And even when she leaves this mysterious place she comes up from, the home she makes for herself and for her daughter kind of might as well be a fairy tale for it. There are weird elements in their house that really fit that um, that fairy tale woodsy theme as well. So not only does it deal with like fairy tale worlds and elements like that, the gingerbread and the female friendships, there's also like, it talks about classism in really subtle ways. It's just so interesting really eerie, really whimsical. It's kind of like Wes Anderson and a bit Where'd You Go Bernadette, but entirely Helen Oyeyemi. I was just completely delighted by this book. So again, that was Gingerbread by Helen Oyeyemi. I have a galley of that that I have to read. I mean, it's out <laughs> now, but I still have my galley. <laughs> I just have to read I know. It. I read it. I have my galley. I probably 
should replace it. Lost on a farm. Good, good show title. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, speaking of weaponized nature, Mm -hmm. There was no way I wasn't going to talk about the Southern Reach series by Jeff Vandermeer on this podcast. It has been collected as Area X, the Southern Reach trilogy, if you want all the books in one, or separately, they are Annihilation, Authority, and Acceptance. And if you have not already read these, it is, the idea is that in Florida, basically around the Everglades, there has developed a region where very weird things are happening. Nature has reclaimed any remnants of human civilization in this area. It's been walled off by a sort of shady government agency. It's been called Area X. And it turns out that they, this agency has been sending expeditions in to try to figure out what on earth is going on and people either don't come back or they come back and then die basically immediately of cancer. And so the book picks up with a group that is the 12th expedition into this area X made up of four women. There's an anthropologist, a surveyor, a psychologist, and a biologist. And the biologist is the one who's narrating the story and they go in and almost immediately things start going wrong. And that's the first book. That's Annihilation, which did get turned into a movie. I haven't seen it yet. I heard they had changed it pretty dramatically and I, I do think the cast is interesting and I want to see it. I just haven't gotten around to it. Um, I have some, I have some concerns basically, (laughs) but it does does look interesting. I will, I will give it that. Um, But so, yeah, so the first book Annihilation is about this expedition. The second book goes out to the agency and you get a little peek behind that, but there's still a lot of weird nature in it. And then book three, everything just sort of blows up. But it all revolves around this concept of nature having its own agency and how that could go very badly for humans. Not that it's necessarily bad for nature, but it sure isn't good for us in this situation. And Jeff Vandermeer's brain is so strange. And there's so much like fungus and mold and moss and leafy things. And then animals that have been turned into other kinds of animals. And is it even an animal? Is that a human? Like what has gone on here? It's a very creepy crawly. Like makes me feel I'm making weird like shoulder movements in my chair. (laughs) It's, It's very like gets it feels like it gets under your skin um, in a way that, again, if I trust the author, I will go along with it. And Vendermeer, I think, does a really amazing job with this concept and of making it just sort of fascinating. And even as you're creeped out, you kind of can't turn away. And I think that this definitely has a certain amount of stuff in common with like, don't go into the woods. There's bad things in the woods, but it's a much more meta modern contemporary take on it. And I I guess theoretically this is inhabiting the sci-fi 
uh, slot of my picks, but it's, it's, I think it's much more truly speculative in that there aren't a lot of mechanisms explained here. And the characters are scientists for the most part. So they're trying to bring science to bear on this very strange situation, but they're not necessarily successful, I guess is what I will say. And at the end of the series, you're like, I I mean, I personally have a theory for what happened, but other people have different theories and there's no real, I don't think, official conclusion, which is kind of the point as far as I can tell. And so it's really interesting. It's a book that is, like I said, very twisty turny, very creepy crawly. And you, like, I probably will now maybe not visit the Everglades in Florida. <laughs> not like I spend a ton of time in Florida as it is. I certainly would not go after dark and without a guide. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so again, that is the Southern Reach Trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer. <laughs> Yeah. Shuddering. Uh, <laughs> well, my science fiction pick is definitely also more on the nose of nature. Uh, it's God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach by Kelly Robson, which we were actually just talking about because it's up for a Hugo under the novella category this year. Uh, so this is a shorter read because it's a novella, and it just so happens to be about ecology. It was very convenient. Um, and there are two prongs in this story. One is following a team of scientists and one is following this figure, let's say, from the past. So you've got Min, who's the main character, and her team. They're from the future. The world has suffered this really horrible disaster and they're just climbing out of the waste to scrounge up a sort of future for themselves by looking for it in the past through time travel. So they're on this. There's so much going on in the story. Yeah, that is a lot of things. <laughs> it's a lot of things. It's not even half of it. Um, so they're on this ecological mission. And this picture of what humans have become as a result of this eco-disaster starts to clarify. Like, things are weird from the beginning. They just get weirder. And you realize the desperation of this expedition to gather ecological samples for rebuilding. And Min is totally dedicated to her work. Like the RFP is her life. The request for proposal is her total life. And she comes from this certain generation of humans who've been living underground and are trying to rebuild. They're called plague babies, which does not sound like a great thing to be called, but <laughs> that is what they're called. <laughs> And, you know, just imagine a future where humans are modded out and we still have a lot of miserable, boring bureaucracy as well. So there are multiple levels of kind of post-apocalyptic misery going on in the story. And then there's another generation Min has to deal with when this team is formed. She has this like eclectic team, which is actually something I really enjoy in a lot of science fiction stories. Like you've got these people who are kind of nothing alike, have nothing in common and clash in a lot of ways. And they have to go uh, be participant in this team and do something together. They have to achieve this goal. So it's this whole team. Uh, they have one of the younger generation. Uh, they have an idealistic animal lover and this sort of strategist who is a the suspicious character in the story. And then there's this propulsion the whole time where the past 
and the president are on a collision course. And right from the beginning, you kind of you get an immediate glimpse that, okay, there's something that's going to happen, but you don't know how it's going to all happen and what's going to happen after this. This is so confusing. <laughs> what's going to happen after this climax? So you have to find out where the past and the future meet and who these people are and how they're going to either not get along or get along. So you've got this ecological disaster, you've got time travel, you've got mind games. And I think that it's always interesting with shorter fiction. I feel like there's more room to experiment with storytelling. And this novella reminded me of some of the more surreal, trippy sci-fi I've read, like a China medieval story. It kind of goes with, uh, you know, Vandermeer as well, like that weird fiction, uh, even though it has very specific science fiction elements. And it definitely did take me a minute to wrap my head around exactly what was going on and to imagine even the characters, like the places and the people and the technology. But you get into the groove and you find yourself on this really fascinating, compelling journey. And then on a more relatable level, beyond like these modded bodies and underground societies, you have these people who have just suffered this ecological disaster going to the past to take from it. And considering everything that happened, you know, you have the question in your mind, are they being mindful of life? Are they being mindful of the past? And that's, you know, you'll have to read it to find out. So if you're looking for something with like a team mission, some time travel to way back when, and also some mythical elements as well, you should definitely check out God's Monsters and The Lucky Peach by Kelly Robson. Awesome. And that's it for our show. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for bearing with me and my sound. I will get it fixed. Uh, and thank you for listening as always. You can email us at sffyeah at bookriot.com. And please do review us on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from you and hear what you're thinking. Uh, you can always reach us online. I'm on Instagram at Williams. That's S-Z-A-I-N-A-B Williams. How about you, Jen? I am on Twitter as Jen IRL. That's Jen with two N's IRL. And you can now find me on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading.